Morning. Our reading today comes from John 2. I don't have the church Bible, so I apologise for that. Somebody can shout out the page name. No? Okay. John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Jesus clears the temple. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Sarah. Elma, Amy, and I are just so pleased to be back with you all. Thank you for inviting us. Can you believe it's 36 years since we first came to St. Mary's? And uh, Elma and I were remarking this week how whenever we come back here, it feels like we're coming back to our spiritual home from home. So thank you for the welcomes. Good to see so many I was going to say old face, familiar faces from all back then, still looking good. I mean, look at young Adrian and Rita over there. I mean, 
still as youthful as uh, all those days back then. <laughs> but I, I also want to say thank you so much for standing with us for those 36 years. You really have made our mission possible. If you were to go onto our Amplifying Voices website, you'll come across our vision statement, which says we desire to see communities where we are working, living life in all its fullness, free from poverty, injustice, and conflict. Uh, drawing on Jesus' words from John 10 about what he came to do and why he came to do it. And it's such a privilege. I feel like I'm an observer uh, to seeing what Jesus is doing in many different places. And as we saw in the video, some of those places are really hard. And uh, four of them make it into Open Door's recent uh, top 11 of countries which most persecute Christians. But the Lord is working even there. And uh, as time allows, I want to share one particular story which relates to our text today, and we'll see how we get on. So last week, Mark opened the journey that you as a church are making this season through John's Gospel, and he helpfully set the context of this beautifully created, crafted work, uh, an eyewitness account by the Apostle John. And we were reminded that Jesus himself said that he wrote this, John himself said that he wrote this account so that you and I will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we may have life. That's John 20, 20, John 20, 30. And so we come to John chapter 2, and this first miracle that is recorded by John at a wedding feast in a tiny little village in an outpost called Cana in Galilee. Now, interestingly, John is the only gospel writer who records this miracle. And in fact, he records only seven miracles, which itself is significant if you look at the numerology of the Bible. But uh, those are considerably less than the the accounts of um, miracles in the other gospels, the synoptic gospels. But John's use of the miracle stories is different from the other gospel writers. You see, this is not just a miracle. Of course it is. But in John 11, uh, it says, in verse 11, it says, this was the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. Now, sign is a signifier. It's a signpost, if you like, of Jesus starting his career, beginning his public ministry. But it's also a parable, And we're going to get into that, but first let me ask you, as we're coming into election season, this seems to be most appropriate. If you were to be going to launch your campaign for election as a candidate, what achievement or what great thing would you pull out to start your campaign? What would you focus on? Any budding politicians here? Perhaps a nice big tax cut. That always seems to go down well with the electorate. But you do something significant, right? Something showy. This is the launch of your campaign. Your message needs to be clear. It needs to say what you're about and why. This is your, the experts will say, your brand identity. 
So here we have Jesus about to launch his public ministry and he performs this miraculous solution to an apparent mere social embarrassment. Of course, it's much more than just a social embarrassment, but doesn't that strike you as a bit odd? He's not raising anybody from the dead yet. The sick aren't being healed. No one's being delivered from demon possession. The starving aren't being fed. He's not walking on water. Why? Why would Jesus do this as his first miracle to show the world who he is? And why would he do this miracle to be an opening sign to signify that he's the anointed Messiah that the, the prophets and testified in the Old Testament? When you start to ask these questions, you realize that there's so much more in this story than meets the eye. I think it was St. Augustine who said that the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. And it expresses, of course, the remarkable way that the key to understanding the New Testament is to see the fulfillment in those things that were revealed in the background of the Old Testament, the Old Testament pointing forwards to a time, preparing us for the work of Christ in the New Testament. And as Mark shared last week, just as the opening passage of John 1 echoes Genesis chapter 1 of Jesus being there, he who through whom all things were created, we find throughout the, the account of the Gospel of John, he continually references back to multiple texts in the Hebrew Scriptures with signs and symbols which all point to the Messianic kingdom, describing a time when there will be a profusion of wine. Several references to that. So it's no accident that this first miracle begins at a humble wedding in Cana in Galilee and with wine. Now, there is so much going on here. When I reached page 20 in my sermon notes, I knew I was going to have to narrow this down. So this morning, I'm going to just draw out three often overlooked but significant details of this miracle. And they show us who Jesus is, what he came to do, and why we need to respond. Who Jesus is, what he came to do, and why we need to respond. So the first detail or signifier is this. Let's consider the vessels that Jesus chose to do this miracle. Now they've run out of wine at the wedding, right? We know that. So there are plenty of empty vessels around. So why didn't Jesus just tell the servants to gather up all the empty jars for the miracle to happen in those vessels? That would make sense, wouldn't it? And yet Jesus chose those murky, bacteria-filled water pots for this miracle and asked his servants to fill them up to the brim. I believe John, the eyewitness, has deliberately included this detail exactly because they were jars that were used for ceremonial purposes, for ritual purification. Jesus used those jars for a reason. The Jews, of course, put a high premium on purification because they understood that coming before a holy God, they would need to consecrate themselves externally before approaching him to, to worship. 
And to do this, they would take ritual baths to make sure that their bodies were washed and cleansed. So it's significant that these six pots were used for this purpose. This is not coincidental. Jesus is signifying something here. Of all the empty vessels he could have used, he chose the vessels which contain water for purification ceremonies. Now what is wine symbolic of in the Bible, especially in the New Testament? The blood, right? In particular, Jesus' blood, as we remember every time we take communion together, a symbol of the new covenant. And we hear those words from the gospel. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So here in this symbol, Jesus is communicating a message that external cleansing only does so much. The real cleansing that every single one of us needs is a cleansing on the inside of the heart. And that would only come through the blood sacrifice of Jesus who offered his life on the cross. I think this is very intentional. This first miracle becomes a sign where the water which was used for external cleansing was replaced with wine, a symbol of his blood that he would shed on the cross for the internal cleansing of the human heart. But secondly, there's more to this strange story and its significance of being the first miracle. And we need to look back to an echo from the Old Testament to understand the significance of Jesus' first public miracle, turning water into wine. And it goes back to Moses and his first miracle. In Exodus 7, we read Moses' first public miracle to rescue the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt. Do you remember what it was? He turned the waters of the Nile and all the waters in Egypt into blood. The turning of water into blood publicly initiated Moses as a savior, a kind of prototype Messiah, leading his people out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt into an earthly liberty. So can we see the significance of Jesus turning water into wine? This initiated him whose name is Jesus, Yeshua, the very name meaning literally God who saves the Savior taking his people out of the bondage of the corruption of the world, as Romans 8.21 puts it, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. But while the signs of God that he gave to Moses in the Old Testament, and particularly this sign was one of judgment and curse and plagues and destruction, the sign that Jesus did of water into wine was a sign of restoration and redemption, healing and blessing and life. The sign of, G of Egypt was a symbol of judgment, but the water into wine is symbol, symbolic of life for the world. As the prophet Isaiah says, looking forward to that day in Isaiah 25, the Lord Almighty will prepare a banquet for all nations of the world, a banquet of the richest food and the finest wine. He will suddenly remove the cloud of sorrow that has been hanging over all nations. The sovereign Lord will destroy death forever. He will wipe away the tears from everyone's eyes and take away the disgrace people have suffered through the world. The Lord himself has spoken. The third 
signifier I want to draw out is to consider how striking that it is that this should be a wedding as the occasion for this first great miracle on the very first week of Jesus' public ministry. The the Bible tells us throughout the Old Testament, uh, the prophet said that the God of the Bible doesn't just simply want to relate to us as a king to his subjects. And he doesn't want to relate simply to us as a shepherd to sheep. Nor does he just simply want to relate to us as a father relates to his children. But we're told again and again in the Old Testament that God wants to love us and know us and unite with us as profoundly as a husband to a wife. And therefore, several times through the Old Testament, God characterizes himself as a bridegroom and uses the language of the marriage covenant, which, of course, the people of Israel kept breaking. And then we know that Jesus continues this image in the Gospel of Matthew when somebody asked his disciples, why don't your disciples fast? Jesus has the audacity to say, do the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is still with them? The bridegroom. He's calling himself the bridegroom. And in fact, if you go to the very next, of, the next chapter in John chapter 3 at the end, uh, when John the Baptist is uh, having an encounter with people and they say to him, all your disciples are leaving after Jesus. How does John respond? John the Baptist knows who Jesus is and he says the bride belongs to the bridegroom the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice that joy is mine and it's now complete so going back to this wedding although it's the bridegroom's responsibility to ensure that there's enough food and enough wine for the many days or festivities that are going on and this bridegroom has clearly made a major mess up who does Mary go to? she comes to Jesus and says they have no wine and his response quite abruptly and frankly seems quite strange I noticed in the reading we had it's a dear woman the translation is woman woman why do you involve me? and then Jesus says My hour has not yet come in the translation. Some translations have, my time has not yet come. But actually, when you look at it, it's the Greek word aura. My hour has not yet come. And throughout John's gospel, hour has a specific meaning. If you go to John chapter 7, verse 30, chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 12, verse 23, chapter 13, verse 1, if you look them up, you'll see when Jesus says, The hour, he means the hour of my death. So his response to Mary, it's not my hour. Jesus is saying to her, it's not my time to die yet. It doesn't really make sense. Son, they've run out of wine. Woman, it's not my time to die yet. What John is using here is a literary device called a non sequitur where two back-to-back sentences don't make sense unless you realize that Jesus is looking into the future at something of which the present is a parable, is a pattern, a signifier. Of course, 
He's not talking about this wine. He's not talking about this wedding. As the bridegroom, he's thinking of his own wedding. For this wedding feast in Cana, Jesus doesn't have to die to create wine. What Jesus is foreshadowing is his own wedding feast. He knows that the only way to get through that is the hour of his death. He knew a time was coming when one day he would be in a a garden and he would pray, Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet not your will, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knows he has to pass through to get to where John the Apostle would later describe to us at the end of his book of Revelation. In Revelation 21, John writes, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, no more grief or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And John writes, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Friends, that's great news for us because we have been invited. So a miracle that signifies a reverse of the curse of a saviour taking his people out of bondage of the world of corruption. A miracle that signifies a new kind of purification, that which cleanses the inside, the human heart. And the miracle that points to a God who has come to rescue his bride and the ultimate wedding feast. That's just scratching the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more to plumb from this story and we haven't even touched on the second part of John 2 where Jesus cleanses the temple by driving the money changers and market sellers away. And if this miracle at Cana demonstrates his power and his glory, the cleansing of the temple demonstrates his authority. And I understand you're going to be looking at this again in house groups and Um, the significance of what Jesus is saying about the temple. But time is pressing, and I feel like I can't do this text justice. But then I wonder, I also hear maybe somebody saying, so what does all this mean for me? Well, good signs are helpful. Confusing, unclear signs are no good at all. Last week, I was driving a group of disabled people into Brighton and found myself going down a one-way street because of very confusing road signs and unfortunately drove right into an ANPR camera, so I'm fully expecting to receive something through the post. And although I will contest it as bad signage, they will say it's the law. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, and I will suspect there will be no grace and mercy. But a good sign is needed, and a good sign should be heeded. You'd be a fool simply to admire it as a sign and not to do what it says. In my defense, the sign didn't do what it said. 
But if you don't follow signs, there are consequences, and sometimes they can be devastating. You wouldn't go down a one-way street the wrong way. The consequences would be coming into ongoing traffic. So what is the significance of these signs? Firstly, this eyewitness account by John reveals the overwhelming evidence of Jesus to be God's spirit-anointed king, God's divine, unique Son. They reveal he has come to bring life. If we read the signs correctly, we see that they point us to who Jesus is. Secondly, the proper response to the signs is to believe what the signs indicate us that we should do, to trust in the sign giver and give our allegiance, our loyalty to him. The danger is that we focus on the signs themselves and even demand that something similar should be done for us. But that is to miss the point. That would be like standing in front of a sign and admiring the way it is written, but not seeing what it is saying. It would be like reading a sign, go back, you're going the wrong way, and not taking any notice. The third thing is this. Jesus is still the Lord of the wine. He's still in the business of transformation. He's still speaking and involved in our lives. Have you run out of wine? Are you feeling left disappointed in the way things just didn't work out the way you had hoped? Have you run out of wine for your dreams, feeling like you're just going through the motions? That the wine has gone dry? It's in that feeling of despair that Jesus provides not just wine, but blessing. The best wine was there at the end of that feast. God is still acting and involved in our lives. So let's follow Mary's advice. Do what Jesus tells us to do. Go back to the basics. The gospel of sharing, the gospel of forgiving, the gospel of serving others, the gospel of trusting that God is with you. He can turn our weeping into laughter, our sorrow into joys, our fears and failures into witness of transforming power, our cries of anguish into shouts of praise. I don't know if there's time, but I'd love to, yes I will, end with the story of how the signs of the kingdom are still reverberating across the world today. Five months ago, a very bright, young, Hindu, indigenous, tribal woman, whom I'll call Rebecca for her own safety and security, attended a dressmaking shop with one of the teams we support in a remote part of India. And uh, Rebecca came to a workshop to learn how to improve her sewing skills and how to start a business. She was very interested in this, but she was also adamant that she was not going to be influenced by these Christians who ran this workshop. She was there to learn about sewing and about business. They were so impressed with this woman, the brightness of this woman, that they asked her if she'd like to join their team 
to help create content for the Speakerbox project, content that uh, is all about health and livelihoods and well-being for communities. So she did. But as Rebecca witnessed the love and compassion and care that this team demonstrated for each other and for those around them, she soon started to join them in their fellowship meetings. And within a very short space of time, she had decided that she wanted to follow Jesus. Unfortunately, when she went home and shared her newfound faith with her family, they were very angry. And her brother just happened to be a very powerful community leader with very powerful political connections in the state. And he made a huge amount of trouble for Rebecca and for the team, which uh, still have ongoing ramifications to this day. Rebecca is effectively under house arrest in her own family. Well, we're very concerned for her health and personal well-being. And I spoke to the team leader, Renuka, in India just this last week on a Zoom call, and they are making plans to get her freed from her situation. And I asked Rebecca, uh, Renuka, how is Rebecca keeping her faith? She came to faith in Christ five years. Months ago, she has never had any formal teaching. She's never, been to a, uh, she's never heard a sermon. She's never been to a church. Renika said to me that she had Rebecca's Bible in her possession. She left it with her. And uh, she said when she looked through Rebecca's Bible, she had seen that she had underlined just about every page of scripture from the Old Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, pages were underlined and there were copious notes. And then she lifted up the Bible to the, to the camera on the Zoom call and showed me what she'd written on the front of her uh, Bible in her mother tongue, a direct quote from John 1, 12. All who have believed in Jesus and accepted him, he has given the right to become children of God. And then she wrote underneath that, my life will soon pass, but what will last forever is what I do for Christ. The amazing thing is Rebecca's story is not unique because every week I'm hearing new stories of people in tribal communities following Jesus, even in the context of a country which now has reached number 11 on the Open Doors watch list of countries that most persecute Christians. You see, the signs of the kingdom are still reverberating around the world today. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for Jesus, who turned water into wine at immeasurable cost to himself and at immeasurable blessing to us. Lord, help us to see something of the glory of Jesus today. And as we see his glory, Lord, we would ask that you would help us to submit to his purpose for our lives. Help us to trust and obey and look to Jesus to discern the work he is doing in us 
and through us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the Lord of the wedding. Amen.